Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in San Diego, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through His Word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com. Sue Mankid. Have any of you read her novels before? She's best known probably for The Secret Life of Bees and The Invention of Wings. Any Sue Monk Kid fans in our midst? Yay, wonderful. She tells us that stories have to be told or they die. And when they die, we can't remember who we are or why we are here. Similarly, cultural anthropologist Michael Margoli argues that the stories we tell literally make the world. The stories we tell literally make the world. And if you want to change the world, change your story or change the story that you tell. It is Jimmy Neal Smith, journalist and founder of the International Storytelling Center, who declares with ultimate conviction that we are all storytellers. Every single one of us is a storyteller. Humanity has told many stories, and the stories told span our collective history, and they are passed down from one age to the next. And our attempts to synthesize the human story can essentially be traced all the way back to Aristotle's poetics. And it's in this that Aristotle argues that all stories can be condensed and distilled or synthesized into one single narrative arc. That is equilibrium, disruption, and then a return again to equilibrium. Now, if you have any exposure to the scriptures, this might sound familiar because it is. This is essentially the narrative arc of God's true and unending story which on a meta level can be understood in four movements, four movements that take place across history and for all time. Creation, fall, redemption, and recreation. Aristotle was getting to the heart of what we have all tried to express, the single story of God. Equilibrium, disequilibrium or disruption and a return to equilibrium, creation for redemption and recreation in biblical language. And so I would argue that every story we tell is either a successful or unsuccessful attempt to make sense of or articulate this one true story. The story of God as revealed in the scriptures and then made manifest in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, the Bible teaches us in books like Acts and Hebrews that we are not only to hear God's story told, but we're actually to receive it. We're to receive God's story in the depths of our hearts that it might take root in the the depths of our bones so that the person of Jesus might be established in us, in our character, in our conduct, and in the spaces that we embody. 
One of my favorite philosophers, James K.A. Smith, explains it this way. He says that stories captivate us and they sink into our bones. We live in the story that we absorb and we then become characters in the story that has captured our imagination. Dr. Caroline Leaf, who's a fellow South African and specializes in neuroplasticity, would actually agree that we are the stories we tell ourselves. She writes, where the mind goes, the life follows. And so today, what I would love to do is talk about three things as we continue in our series, Planting. It's a series that's looking at the unique ways we believe that God has called Light Church to express and embody the good news of Jesus Christ. And so this is what I want to do today. I want us to hear the good story, to remember that we are called then to live the true story, and finally to remember the call that we tell once again the true story. We are all storytellers, and by God's grace and his mercy and his kindness, we are a part of his unending story. So let's hear it anew today, receive the call to live it, and then with great joy, clarity, conviction, tell it once again and pass it on to the next generation. As we do this, I pray that we will see how creativity and compassion are central to the call to follow after Jesus. And these are the two key values that we are looking at from kind of light manifesto of what it can look like to follow Jesus, creativity and compassion, two elements that are central to God's story. Okay, so firstly, let's hear the true story. We read in Genesis 1, verse 1 to 3, that God is the creator. It says this, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. It's interesting that in this very first line of scripture, God chooses to reveal himself as creator. And at this point for us, we must consider what's known as the law of first mention. And it's a guideline that many theologians use to study the scriptures. And this law proposes that in order to better understand a particular word or a particular doctrine that is embedded in the scriptures, we should study the first time that it is revealed or the first time that it is mentioned. And the reason for this is that often the Bible's first mention of a concept is the most simple and clear presentation. And it's on this first presentation, the first time that it's mentioned, that a doctrine is then fleshed out. It's off this foundational basis that the doctrine is then expanded. So God is creator. Like in other books of the Bible, Genesis is primarily theological in nature, which means that Genesis is first and foremost concerned about describing who God is, how and why he relates to humanity. And it's a book, if you've read it, you know this to be true, with enormous significance, enormous breadth, 
and it essentially tackles the first three components of that, narrat that narrative arc that stretches across history. Creation, the creation account, the fall, the, the, in, the entrance of sin into the world, and then it speaks as well to the promise of God's redemption amidst all of this. So Genesis lays the foundation for our knowledge of who God is, his purposes in the world, who we are, and how we are inter to interact with him and engage his world that we find ourselves in. It details our nature and our reality, both our present reality and also our future promised reality. And in the most stunning way, Genesis reveals to us a God who does not give up on a rebellious people, but rather embarks on the arduous task of actually calling back his people to himself, winning his people back to the promise of Eden, his good world created according to his good order, which results in a loving, joyful, eternal life with him that is marked first and foremost by covenantal unity. It's that love that we sang about this morning during worship, the overwhelming, beautiful, all-encompassing, good love of God. So to better understand who God is, you and I today would be wise to consider this first mention of him in Genesis. God is the creator. So God is the creator and sustainer of all things. From nothing, or in the Latin, ex nihilo, the God of the scriptures creates and then he sustains. In, 1 John, chapter, in John chapter one, verse one to five, we read, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him, all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So God is creator, and as such, Everything that he has created is subordinate to him. So let's pause very briefly to consider why God chose to create anything at all. So if he exists in loving unity as God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, lacking nothing, why create in the first place? Why is he God the creator? Well, the Bible teaches us that God created all things for his pleasure and for his own glory. And his chief reason for creating was that creation, you and me and everything around us might point back to and glorify him. That we might refract the goodness of God. That we might refract the beauty of God. That we might refract the holiness and righteousness and justice of the one who creates and sustains everything. Creation can glorify God passively. And then through just like the creative display of his genius, you know, you can walk into the mountains or you can go to the coast and you can see the creative genius. Something is stirred in your heart when you look upon beauty. 
because it glorifies him and refracts and points back to the one who is so good. So we can glorify God passively and in humanity, us, we can actually also glorify God actively. And we do this by loving him, by obeying him, by serving him and one another. So God creates for his own pleasure and glory. And we read in Isaiah 43, verse seven, bring all who claim me as their God, for I have made them for my glory. It was I who created them. God declares it was me. Bring them to me. I have made all things and all people over all generations for my glory. So we read in Genesis that the spirit of God was hovering over the chaotic waters and then God spoke and his creation was birthed and and order, life and vitality became known, the shalom, the wholeness of God's rule. God is creator, the spirit hovered, God spoke and there was a perfect, good and beautiful creation. In the words of Pink, if God is creator, what about us? Well, we are created in his image. Genesis chapter one, verse 27 to 28 reads, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. What about us? We are made in his image. God created humanity to both passively and actively glorify him in the way that we bear his likeness. And so with this in mind, In his book, The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis suggests that there is then no ordinary people. He writes, you have never met a mere mortal. Why? Because we are created with the stamp and the seal and the fingerprints and the image and the DNA, the likeness of our creator God. So if God is first revealed as creator and humanity is made in his image and commissioned to bring him pleasure and to glorify him through the quality of our lives, it remains that you and me and every living person remains latent with creative potential. And we are pregnant with inexpressible value. A creator God, humanity created in his image, who is then latent with creative potential. This has led certain thinkers to suggest that calling a human being creative is actually redundant. It's not necessary. It's stating the obvious because as image bearers of the creator God, we are generative in nature. We are creative by our very nature. And in fact, God actually commands us to be so. He commissions us into the reality of how he has created us. And that is to be fruitful. To be fruitful is to para, which is a Hebrew verb, 
A verb, I don't know if you ever learned this at school, but in South Africa, we learned a verb is a doing word because when you run, there's a V in your arm and it's a doing word. So to para is to bear fruit. It's an active reality. It's to bring forth, to cause something new to be, to make, to grow, to increase to stretch the blessing of God's rule across the earth as we do so in partnership with him, as those who bear his image, sent in his authority. And so as those who are sent by God in partnership with God himself, we should follow the activity of God, a God who creates and generates So this is an important framework for us and one that we'll come back to in a moment. So God is a creator God. We are made in his his image. But God is also a God of love. If that was a very brief top line framework of identity and creativity, as Tina Turner would ask, what's love got to do with it? Or if you really do prefer pink, what about love? Simply put, the essence of the God who creates is love. So as those who bear his image, we therefore create and generate and bear fruit and para in and from his love. We do this from the reality of God's eternal, perfect nature of love. 1 John chapter 4 verse 16 reads, God is love. Love. That's a total, all-encompassing statement. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. So since God is love, love is the way in which he relates to all of his creation. He is always good towards us. He loves unselfishly and seeks our highest good. His love is expressed to us through three, three characteristics, benevolence, mercy, and grace. And I want to say a quick word on each one of them. And as you read the scriptures, you can track these in each story as the person of God who is love is revealed to us. So if God's love is expressed to us in benevolence, it's important for us to know that benevolence is God's goodness. It's his commitment to doing what is good for us. It is his unselfish interest in us for our own sake. Benevolence is God's goodness and appoints us back to his love. Grace is God's commitment to deal with us according to his goodness rather than our own merits. It it is his love that is manifest towards all of us who are guilty and find ourselves in sin. The reality of the fall. Grace, however, is the stunning reality that God gives us what we do not deserve, which is his favor. The grace of God, the favor of God rests upon you because he is love and he has loved you. Mercy then is the tender-hearted compassion of God. God's mercy is toward his people who are in need of him. Mercy points to the fact that God sympathizes with those who are in dire, difficult situations, those who are at an end to themselves. 
He feels our pain. He sees our grief. And he doesn't stand by as a passive observer. Instead, he acts to comfort us. He's not cold. He is not aloof. He is not indifferent or disinterested when we are in trouble. Rather, he enters into our experience in love. God's love is expressed to us in benevolence, in mercy, and in grace. If we had to pause this conversation and kind of like pinch the screen of our lives and step back, you know, my children, sometimes when they look at things because they're like are growing up with technology, they're like trying to pinch things. If we had to pinch our lives and zoom out, we, would, we could step back and see that there are key markers of this whole theological framework that we read of in the scriptures. And, and when we stand back from all of this detail, what we might notice is that there are three common properties of being that are essential ultimately to God's nature that are then stamped into his world and stamped onto his people. And they have been come to, to uh, be called or known of as the transcendentals. So they are goodness, beauty, and truth. If we stepped back from this big grand narrative and this big story of, of God, there are three common elements, goodness, beauty, and truth that are stamped and foundational to the nature of God and stamped in his world and stamped onto us. And these are what Plato, Augustine, and Aristotle would argue to be first concepts that cannot be traced back to anything before them. So they can't be traced back to anything preceding them. But what's beautiful is that a Christian worldview argues that goodness, beauty, and truth are the ultimate human longing. They are the great longing of humanity because they are found perfectly and completely in the person of God. Ontologically, they are one, which is to say that God is complete and perfect goodness. God is complete and perfect beauty, and God is perfect and complete truth. And as such, in the same way that we can long for and hunger after our creator, we long for and we hunger after a full experience of goodness, beauty, and truth. Because they point us towards God. They tell us of God's story, and they are the means through which we can know and experience our creator God. Goodness, beauty, and truth are vehicles or avenues through which we can experience who God is. This is why poets and writers and artists have spoken about goodness, beauty, and truth for centuries because we long for and hunger after the God who embodies them perfectly. John Keats wrote a poem, Ode to a Grecian Urn, and in it he ends it with the most stunning line. He writes, beauty is truth, truth, beauty. That is all you know on earth and all you need to know. St. Basil the Great is known to have said, by nature, men desire the beautiful. Plato announced that beauty is the splendor of truth. And Jesus says in John 10, 10, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the fullness 
of goodness, beauty, and truth. And so Dostoevsky is right. Beauty will save the world. Beauty will save the world because he is the Christ. This is the true story of the creator God who creates us in his image to be fruitful and then live from his love. So if this is the true story of God, we are called as partners of God's story, those who bear his image, those who are created to create and be generative to live the true story of God. And so we are called as followers of Jesus to live a life of creativity, of generativity, of fruitfulness. In Genesis, we read that the spirit hovered over the chaos of the waters and then God spoke and created an order into being, one that is marked by fullness, by peace, by life, vitality, shalom. And friends, in the same way, amidst the reality of the fall, living where we find ourselves in that narrative arc of God's story, the Spirit hovers over all who call Christ their Lord. And what He does is He animates our living with the life of Christ. And then He speaks a created order through us according to His pleasure and for His glory. God hovered over creation and spoke something into being. And through our lives, the Spirit hovers over those who call Christ their Lord and creates a new thing, a work of his kingdom amidst the fall. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7 to 10 in the message reads, Now God has us where he wants us with all the time in this world and the next to shower grace and kindness upon us in Christ Jesus. Saving is all his idea and all his work. All we do is trust him enough to let him do it. It's God's gift from start to finish. We don't play a major role. If we did, we'd probably go around bragging that we'd done the whole thing. No, we neither make nor save ourselves. God does both the making and the saving. He creates each of us by Christ Jesus simply to join him in the work that he does, the good work that he has gotten ready for us to do, work that we had better be doing. Why? Because we are generative by nature, called commissioned, sent to extend the blessing of God's rule across the face of the earth. And this is precisely why Francis Schaeffer says, no work of art is more important than the Christian's life. And every Christian, you and me, are called to be an artist in this sense. The Christian's life is to be a thing of truth and also a thing of beauty in the midst of a lost and despairing world. And so as we speak about creativity and compassion this morning, I want to encourage you, friends, do not disqualify yourself from the conversation because you do not classify yourself as a creative. I want to say to you today, you are made in the image of the creator God and by default, you are a creative human being. You are creative and your life is the greatest work of art that can ever be known, seen, or witnessed because
because you point back to and reflect the goodness and glory and beauty and truth and splendor of God to a lost and despairing world. This is the call of God upon your life, to be creative, to generate the life of the living God wherever you go, however he has called you to do that. So to live this way is to proclaim that one true story. It's to infuse a world marked by Satan, sin, and death with the promised hope that Christ is our Savior, that the light indeed has been let in. Christ has spoken light into the darkness, and in him all things are made new. And by his grace and in his mercy, he uses us to make things new today until he comes to redeem in fullness and usher in in fullness the reality of his kingdom. His decisive act is clear. He has won the victory and in the in between God uses us until he comes again. Goodness, beauty, and truth are the promise of God's good rule, which has come and like we read and is promised will come in fullness. So this is the commission to us today. Like church, be fruitful. Friends, para, create, generate, bear fruit, bring forth, cause something of the kingdom to be made known and manifest. Manifest God's good world with your life and increase the governance of his rule through your fidelity to Jesus. Isaiah 43, verse 16 to 19 reads, this is what God says. The, the God who builds a road right through the ocean, who carves a path through pounding waves, the God who summons horses and chariots and armies, they lie down and they can't get up. They are snuffed out like so many candles. Forget about what's happened. Don't keep going over old history. Be alert. I am present. I'm about to do something brand new. It's bursting out. Don't you see it? There it is. I'm making a road through the desert and rivers in the badlands. God is at work. He is present in the desert, in the badlands. And how does he do this? through the person and work of Jesus Christ, through the empowering presence of the Spirit who hovers over your life. The same Spirit that hovered over the chaotic waters hovers over your life and empowers you to bear witness to God. In his book, Rembrandt in the Wind, Russ Ramsey explains what we have likely all experienced to be true. He says, every man is almost always led to believe not through proof, but through that which is beautiful. And I would encourage you to think about your own lives, your own life of faith. And if you're still somewhere along that continuum, do it now too. Think about your life of faith and what is it that compelled you to Christ? Was it logic or was it something more? Was it beauty? Was it goodness? Was it truth? Because God uses beauty to woo and to warm hearts, and he invites us to step into that reality of beauty and live beautiful lives for which we are created. The invitation is to both live in and then live out the good, beautiful, and true story of God. Therefore, retelling the good news through the mundane and the splendid moments of our own lives. 
creation, fall, redemption, and recreation. This is the story of God. Nienti Wright reminds us and calls us to this. He says, the challenge, I believe, for the Christian artist in whatever sphere is to tell the story of the new world, the world, of recre- the world that God is recreating and the reality of his goodness so that people can taste it and want it, even while acknowledging the reality of the desert in which we presently live. And so today, our response out of this should be, come Holy Spirit, Come, Holy Spirit, might we see the reality that you are hovering in our midst. My prayer for us as a community is that the Holy Spirit would hover over the accountants and empower them to bring order and stability amongst economic chaos and so breathe the generative, creative life of Christ. My prayer is that the Holy Spirit would hover over the men and women serving this nation so that with dexterity and wisdom they can secure a future marked by life and peace and wholeness and the shalom of God here on earth as it is in heaven. My prayer is that the Holy Spirit would come and hover over the lives of the people in this room and the children that fill the hallways of this venue, but also the hallways of our schools, and that the Holy Spirit would hover over the students that fill our universities, both of whom are dreaming a future reality into being today. The Holy Spirit would hover over moms and dads who whisper the truth of God's kingdom into little hearts as they fall asleep, and that the Holy Spirit would hover over designers and doctors and entrepreneurs and civil servants, that we might know the light of life who is Christ and empowers us to live the true story of God as creative image bearers of the creator God who speaks and sustains all things into being. To live in the true story, friends, is to live in a manner that bears testimony to his image. It is a creative and compassionate God who is at work and is doing a new thing, the new thing of his kingdom here on earth today. It's a kingdom where the last are first, where children are the guests of honor, where death leads to life, where there are roads through an ocean and rivers in the badlands. It's a surprising, creative, unexpected kingdom that's marked by a baby. Things like salt and light and bread and fish. Would we open the eyes of our heart to see the creative reality of a creative God that we are called to embody. So not only are we called to live creative lives, we are also called to then live compassionate lives. And how does this happen? Well, it can only be possible when we ourselves live in and from God's love, which becomes the motivation for all generativity in our lives, all fullness and fruitfulness in creativity. So that same pattern we first looked at that was present in creation is now present in the lives of those who know and follow Christ. The spirit hovers over the chaos of of our lives, which is marked by disequilibrium and sin. And the father then speaks a true word over us. And he commissions and sends us, empowered by that same Holy Spirit, to speak a true word over the lives of those around us that they might experience 
equilibrium, restoration, redemption out of chaos. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6 reads, For God who said, Let there be light in the darkness has made this light shine in our hearts so that we could know the glory of God that is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. We are made new, redeemed, and recreated in Christ Jesus. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 reads, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so the call then is to do the same for those around us. As those who bear his image, the love of God that radically redefines us must rush out and meet and radically redefine the circumstances of the people around us. Through the spirit who hovers over our lives, a new kingdom reality is made known. And we do this by relating to others in the same way that he first relates to us, in love, with benevolence, in grace, with the mercy, unselfishly seeking the highest good for others. Benevolence, a reminder, an unselfish and enduring commitment to doing what is good for the interest of others. Grace, pledging ourselves to giving others what they might not deserve and relating instead to one another through the goodness of God's own nature rather than the basis of merit. And finally, mercy, we are called friends to sympathize with those who are in need by acknowledging one another's pain, by acting to bring comfort, help, and relief. We are not passive bystanders. We enter in like God himself enters into the story of humanity. We step into the discomfort of each other's lives, even when and especially at great cost to ourselves. 1 John 4, verse 7, and then verse 11 to 12 says this, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. John chapter 13, 34 to 35, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, by your love, everyone will know that you are my disciples. Love is thus ultimately the mark of a good and beautiful and true life. So where then can our love find a home? In every single face, that bears the weight of God's glory. It is important for us to remember and notice as we read the scriptures that not only does God place a special burden on his people to love one another and care for one another as a sign and a testimony to our love for God, but he also places a special burden on his people to care for and love and serve and minister to the marginalized of society. And so we must consider and ask ourselves, how then are we extending the compassion of Christ that has first been extended to us, both to one another, to those who are poor in situation, and to those who are poor in spirit? See, when we do this, when we live this way, the creative way of God's loving compassion, Jesus' words in Matthew 5 can become a lived reality for many. 
he says this in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. So friends, this leaves us bringing this whole thing to a land, which is the reminder and the call for us not only to hear the true story, and then to live in the true story, but to actually be storytellers and to tell the true story, to proclaim it from one generation to the next with joy and conviction and confidence in Christ. The novelist Flannery O'Connor wrote that there is something in us, there is something in all of us as storytellers and as listeners to stories that demands the redemptive act, that demands that what falls at least be offered the chance to be restored. The reader, and I would say the person of today, looks for this motion. The person of today looks for redemption, and rightly so. But what he has forgotten is the cost of it. Friends, I pray that this would not be true, that people would not forget the cost of redemption, that as we look for it and as we search for it, we would find it and we would not forget where it has come from because Christ, who is Lord, has decisively entered human history in the great redemptive act. And he stretched his arms of love open on the cross for us and has offered what, um, what has fallen a chance to be restored in and through him. So may the world never forget the cost of this redemption because we, the people of God, hear the true story, live the true story, and tell the true story. The Spirit hovers over our lives and creates a whole new reality. The Spirit hovers over our lives and empowers us to live in this new reality. And the Spirit hovers over our testimony as we bear witness to Christ, illuminating the one who is the light of life, the one who shines into the darkness. And all of this is for God's pleasure and his great joy. When C.S. Lewis spoke about his novels, he shared this. All my seven Narnian books began with seeing pictures in my head. The lion, the witch, and the wardrobe began with a picture of a fawn carrying an umbrella and parcels in a snowy wood. This picture had been in my mind since I was about 16. Then, one day when I was about 40, I said to myself, let's try and make a story about it. At first, I had very little idea how the story would go. But then suddenly, Aslan came bounding into it. And once he was there, he pulled the whole story together. Grace, I'd love to invite you up as we close. And I want to say this. 
friends, we do not live under the pressure to live beautiful lives of compassion and creativity. We don't live under a crushing weight to do so. And it's very easy to believe that we do, especially in a city like San Diego that's known for its creative culture and also the very real human need in our midst. Rather, I think we are simply invited to live in Aslan's world, the place where God bounds in and pulls the whole story together because he is the one who is altogether beautiful and altogether lovely. He is altogether good and altogether true. Michael Reeves in his work, Delighting in the Trinity, tells us that indeed it is the triune God, the God of love, who is the very love behind all love. He is the life behind all life. He is the music behind all music and the beauty behind all beauty. He is the joy behind all joy. I'm gonna invite you to stand as we respond to God, a God who is the creator, who has made us in, our, in his image, who is love and has called us to live generative lives of love. And I wanna say to you as we close, to live a life of creativity and compassion is simply just to open the cupboard door and to walk through, enter into, see and experience the reality of Narnia. It's to step into and to see and to experience, to live in and to live out the reality of God's kingdom. The spirit hovered over the chaotic waters and he spoke creation into being. The spirit hovered over a young woman's womb and God was clothed in flesh and entered into human history. The spirit hovered over the waters of Jordan, the Jordan River, when Jesus was baptized and the kingdom of God was inaugurated here on earth as it is in heaven. And friends, the spirit of God hovers over your lives. And as he hovers over your life, Jesus Christ comes bounding in and he holds all things together. And in you and through you is produced the image and likeness of the God that you serve, compassion and creativity, and you refract who he is with stunning conviction and beauty to the world around you. The creative arc of history is creation for redemption and recreation. God is the creator and sustainer of all things. He has made us in his image. And we get to incarnate in the quality of our lives, our Savior, Jesus Christ. With our very lives, we pray. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. With our lives, we inaugurate, like Jesus Christ, the reality of God's kingdom. We love and we generate from the fullness of who he is and the eternal reality of his rule, which is wholeness, life, and peace. Pascal would say that it is our call and our duty in between creation, fall, redemption, and recreation. In that in-between stage, it is our responsibility to keep something beautiful in our hearts.
And that is the image of Jesus Christ. God's true story shines into the darkness, the scriptures tell us, and the darkness will not overcome it. And as we sang and worshiped this morning with our lives, we declare, let the light in because Jesus Christ is the light of life. This is the good news. This is the true story. This is the gospel of Christ. Hear the true story. Live the true story and tell it with great compassion and creativity. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in San Diego, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through his word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com.